Hello, everyone. Welcome to Measuring the Score podcast, the podcast where we offer our opinions on film scores and the films they're inspired by. I'm Chris. And I'm Leslie. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Measuring the Score. I'm Chris. And I'm Leslie. This is episode 14, and today we're going to be talking about The Prestige with music by David Julian. It was the 2005 or 2006 um, Christopher Nolan film. It starred Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Michael Caine. Scarlett uh, Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, Rebecca Hall. And it was about two magicians having a war against each other. But before we talk about that, Leslie, have you been listening to anything other than what we're going to be talking about today? Not this time. Not this time. <laughs> Back to you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it was 2006, by the way. Uh, I actually have. Because uh, our last episode we did, where we were talking about... Um, David Arnold with Independence Day and talk about how he did a lot of the James Bond films. So I started going back and listening to the older James Bond, elder James Bond films that he did, which and were uh, the World Was Not Enough, the ones that are on Spotify, and um, uh, Die Another Day. And what I was listening, they sounded really great. So I'm I'm gonna have to go back and listen to him all the way through. And yeah, he's well known in England. Oh yeah, yeah, and um. What I thought was really funny, going back, because I mentioned that he did the score to uh, Paul with uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, but he also did the score to um, Hot Fuss, which is one of your favorites out of that trio, the Cornetto Trio uh, trilogy. And uh, what was really funny about that, that film was they had a lot of James Bond villains and uh, even yes, had even remember, had uh, yeah. Timothy Dalton in there, so to have David Arnold do the score, that I thought that was pretty pretty clever right there, because you know paying you know huge homage to James Bond by having him compose the score. Well, you know Simon Pegg is a nerd. Well, yeah, and Edgar Wright was talking about on the commentary that um, David Arnold told him he's like, look, yeah, it's it's nice to have an orchestra for the big action sequences and everything else, but it's also really nice to have a big orchestra for the softer pieces. So like the scene where they're having this really kind of soft moment, even though it was a comedic film, the, the music that he had in there was really big and swelling and, and it worked. It worked. It was brilliant. <laughs> you know, especially when you're sitting in an orchestra setting or a band setting and you've got to play like really soft music. Right. You got, you're like in a concert hall that's got bad reverb. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> To try to keep down, especially if you have one of those key instruments that if you're out of tune, you make the whole band sound horrible, Oh, like the French horn. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I did not play the French horn. I played the trombone. So if we messed up, it was okay. No, no, no. <laughs> it's always trombonists were always the goofballs. Oh, yeah. We definitely Anytime were. Anytime you messed up, we either knew that it was if somebody in the lower brass section. <laughs> We used to have a tuba player that would walk around and moo in his tuba. 
<laughs> between songs. I went in between mine and going, fog. <laughs> See? Yeah. All of y'all are the same. Oh, uh, and then we, uh, then I also played the, the Flintstones. Yeah, it was pretty funny. <laughs> I need to get you a trombone. No. No, I'm not playing trombone ever again. So anyway, <laughs> something that does not have a trombone in it is the score to The Prestige. Now, the like I said before, the film is about two magicians going at it into almost a obsessive war against each other because of a trick that goes bad that kills Hugh Jackman's character's wife. It was a very sad scene. And, and then Hugh Jackman becomes obsessed with learning Christian Bale's um, new trick that he has, and it becomes to a point where he's not caring about anyone, including himself. And Nolan was just coming off of Batman Begins when he did this film. And I remember seeing the advertisements for it, and I'm going, so what? It's got real magic in there? You know, this is going to be magic? Yeah, magic? Is this really? Well, yeah, you know, one of the ironic things is that I think one of the fellows in the film was teaching Hugh Jackman and um, Christian Bale sleight of hand tricks. Yeah, his name is uh, Ricky Jay. Yeah. Uh, I've seen him, I'm trying to think of the name of the movie that I saw him in. And he, he wasn't a magician. It was Boogie Nights. He was never in, seen that one. It it's a movie about the porn yeah, industry in the seventies. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> never seen it though. It it was an interesting film. It, I mean, it, uh, and uh, Ricky Jay's character. I remember he was. I think he was a he was a director of photography in the movie, and that was the first time I ever saw that guy. And then I kept seeing him more and more. And then I saw him doing magic one time, and I'm like, so wait, this guy's a magician, like. Seriously, like a full-on magician. Yeah, he really is. And um, I think it said something about he he's more known for up close magic, not showmanship magic. Mind free. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know you were going to bring that up on the podcast? Chris Angel. <laughs> Mind freak. It's the robot chicken um, parody uh, yeah, of sorry. Chris Angel. <laughs> uh, one of the things. Right off the bat, as soon as the score started up, it was very minimalistic. Yeah, that was the first thing I noticed was the fact that it sounded almost like ambient music. Yeah. There wasn't, it wasn't loud. It didn't have any uh, uh, pieces that uh, were independent of one another. And when I mean independent, I mean it it didn't sound, um, it didn't. Besides loud, it, it didn't clash. I mean, right. it was just ambient background music. Yeah, and it, and there there were a couple of moments where uh, the orchestra would come in, and it was you know it it would start getting a little louder the, the louder than what you know was happening before it, and then it would just automatically end. And I, I'm listening to that. It's it's kind of jarring at oh, first. Oh yes, the transitions were bizarre. Yeah. I, I remember when we were listening to it um, together because there was a section of the score we listened to together, and that was one of the things I noticed. I was like, this transition is bizarre. Um, typically, you know, we listen, or I do. I listen to a score to see if it would stand alone on itself as a, a piece of music, and listening to this. It just seemed like the pieces, some of the pieces just ended abruptly. Right. And it didn't connect to the next 
match score piece. And I, th- I thought that was peculiar and a peculiar choice. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree. It, listening to it on its own, it's, it's like I said, it's kind of jarring. It's, it's more, you know, like, okay, what's, what was the purpose of that? Um, trying to, when I listen to a score, I'm trying to see if it's going to tell a story. And it was like, there was a lot of score pieces that were, were doing this weird transition. And it was like, what kind of story is this telling? You know, and as I just mentioned, nothing really stood out. That was, seemed substantial. And like, maybe it was in the third piece. I noticed a key change. I'm like, I noticed that key change. <laughs> Sounded like he changed it a minor. <laughs> and then the rest of it kind of, Faded in the background while we were driving, and I'm like, "Well, this is kind of like mood music." Right? Yeah, it was very mood music. And see, I've made mu- you know music like this before, so to me, I'm listening to it. I'm like, "Okay, this is not bad," but there was like almost no themes. Yeah, and I listened listening for the, to it. Yes, and I listened for the motifs listening to it. But then when we watched a movie, I picked up on a few, it seemed like some few reoccurrent motifs, but they were very subtle. Right. But I didn't pick up on it when I listened to the score initially. I think it was more of a um, problem of listening to the, you know, it wasn't like a deluxe version. It was just a retail version of the score. Uh, We didn't, you know, seek out like a deluxe or expanded score for this but yeah there there was um it was very uh, subtle it, it was like almost like a harp or um theme it was a, the theme of curiosity is what i call it it's like when the magicians are trying to figure out their next trick it's almost for the montage scenes and uh it, that was the one theme in the score that kept coming back and it it, it gave like i said a sense of curiosity now, there were a lot of moments listening to it where there were a lot of uh, suspense and tension building score pieces. So I'm listening to it and going, oh, like, okay, what's, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, you get that weird, abrupt transition again. It's like, what, what is going on? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't pick this up and listen to it by itself. Um, this is one that I, I wouldn't just pick up and listen to. Um, not that I didn't like it. It's because of the re- weird, ab- abrupt uh, transitions and the fact that it kind of just fades into the background uh, to me, you know, with whatever you're doing. Um, maybe I would listen to this if I was trying to fall asleep. <laughs> wow. It, well, I'm just saying it's real mellow. It, it, it is a very mellow a score. Way. It's just mellow. Yeah, it's a very mellow, subtle score. There's no moments in the score where it picks up and it's like a big action cue or anything like that. The tempo seems pretty consistent too. Right. There, there's like I, I didn't hear any anything that sped up. I think that it pretty much maintained the same tempo throughout the whole score. Probably. It probably. I'd have to did. go back and listen. But my first impression of it was that it's just, uh, very melodious, very. Uh, very uh, quiet, s- you know, strong, steady tempo yeah. throughout the whole piece. I think there's like one score piece I remember, and it was like a um, almost like a kick. You know, it, it was do do do, 
And it, it was very subtle when it was coming in, too. It wasn't, you know, over the top. It was just there to kind of add a little bit more attention to the to the score piece. And now, to kind of give you a sense of what we're talking about, uh, without listening to it, uh, I, I do urge you to go and listen to it for yourself, just kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. But to describe it to you, it's it sounds almost like they're, they're it's got like an ambient pad, you know, a very mellow, ambient, soft pad playing with some light orchestra strings, probably playing one or two notes at a time and then moving up or down, you know, depending, and then have some different more, some more ambient pads coming in there. And this, they'll just hold this for a little bit and then they might change a little bit more and they might change and a new instrument might come in there, whereas another another one will fade off. Slight key change. The key changes weren't um, too grievous. They they didn't clash with what was going on. There was on. nothing ever over Other the top. Other than that minor, that it sounded like a minor key, that change at the very beginning that I heard. I'm like, oh, yeah, I noticed that. Um, but it was just really uh, homogeneous. It's the only word that I could use for it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're about right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah. uh, so you know. Then we had this discussion before we watched the movie. Well, there's got to be a reason why uh, the score was like this. We'll be like, well, maybe it was just to amp up the, you know, the moods in the scene. Maybe it was to um, just complement what was going on in the movie. Because as you mentioned, there are instances where you have written scores that were just really ambient, quiet. The The director wanted um, minimalistic yeah. kind of music in the background, and that's what you did. Yeah. And so uh, trying to find some background on this and everything else, uh, before we started watching the film, I come across an interview with David Julian from uh, Any Cool News. And one of the things they asked him, you know, was, you know, with a film like this, because it takes place in a certain period, um, you you would think you would hear, you know, like a solo violin coming in there, orchestra something big. Very and, Victorian, yeah, maybe something very Victorian, maybe opera or right. some voices. And the, he said one of the Christopher Nolan's notes to him was he didn't want a period score. He said the way the film is shot, it is a period setting, but it is not a period film. So that automatically tells you right there, okay, this was a director's choice. Because uh, David Julian is not really known for big orchestral scores. He's really known for minimalistic scores, aside from The Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> that, now that, and maybe The Descent, The Descent Part 1 Love and 2. Uh, but yeah, Cabin in the Woods was a bigger orchestral score. Something I'm, you know, listening to his stuff, it was a little taken back for me. And he, he said that the prestige is more like an urban detective story just taking place a hundred years ago. So that, that kind of makes sense. It has like a noir, you know, tension building score for these, you know, two magicians. So right then and there, okay, okay, we've, we've got a reason why he has this type of score. Well, and, you know, and you know, in your experience that if there is, you know, when you're working with somebody, and they have a notion in their mind, okay, Chris, you know, I want you to um, think about this key element and write this score this way. You've dealt with people like that, that mm -hmm. were very particular about 
the sound that they wanted for their score. So you can understand that. So when he filmed it, he must have had this in his mind already that, right. okay, this is what I'm going to want for the scene. Well, David Julian actually had um, had the script right from the start, and he was he was making up a lot of mock tracks and sending them uh, to Christopher. So Nolan. there was no temp score? No. Uh, David Julian's score... Uh, that the the mock treatments they was coming up with is the temp score. Uh, according well, that's to this, very nice. According to the same interview, it's uh, David said that Christopher Nolan is not really known for using temp scores. So See, that would be a fresh a breath breath fresh fresh breath fresh 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 fresh. I'm starting to sound like a, what's his face <laughs> off of uh, Home Alone. Fresh fresh fresh. Oh, Joe Pesci's character. <laughs> A breath of fresh air right. for somebody like you because you do not like temp scores. Right. So uh, David said instead of uh, you know always hearing can you copy the temp score, it was can you keep moving the mock-ups in the direction that I want. So he, right from the start, he was going in the direction that Nolan wanted, and he, you know it was it was a good collaboration. They knew exactly what they wanted and what the film needed. So when the film started up. It started up with music. Now, again, since this is a minimalistic score, it was very faint. It was very in the background, very in the distance before you started really hearing the score. And yeah, it was and starting it, off with Michael Caine's narration. Correct. And it wasn't overwhelming. Um, uh, that was the first thing I noticed. You know, we've discussed this in this earlier in the season, the few films that we have watched that had the score at the very beginning. And typically, those piece, those movies that have the score at the very beginning, they would normally start off with the theme for that score. They normally, it's normally um, loud. It is normally uh, notable. Uh, this was a little bit different. So I noticed that it just kind of fell in the background and that it didn't really stand out. No, it didn't. It didn't say, okay, here's the theme. This is setting up the theme, you know, musically for this movie. I didn't hear any of that. Now, one of the things he said was um, that he wanted always to have the tension of anticipation, like magic was about to happen. And that's why they had more uh, effects and more electronic, you know, ambient noises regular than, than having a big orchestra. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's very innovative, I would yeah, It really is. Um, my I mean, because... Looking at it from a composer's standpoint, if I got this job and they told me this is what we want, immediately my mind would go to period film, so period music. Yeah. And I probably would have been fired. <laughs> <laughs> opera. All opera. <laughs> All opera. Yeah. That you... lady will sing <laughs> on my score. <laughs> Soprano. Wow. That is not where I was going, but okay. That's period for Victorian. Now, one of the interesting things that you found um, was Christian Bale's character's name was Alfred Borden. Alfred Borden. And then you got Hugh Jackman's character. I choked up talking yeah, about it. I know. It. It's the opera. It's just, it got me going. No, Christian Bale's character is named Alfred Borden. Hugh Jackman's character is named Robert Angier. Abra. As in abracadabra. It's very, see, that's very, very neat. I thought it was pretty neat. Uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and, you know, the movies also, uh, or the screenplay, the three-act screenplay um, was structured around the three elements of the film's illusion, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. 
So it was done in three parts because this movie is actually based off of a book, uh, The by, Prestige uh, by Christopher Priest. Right. Yeah. And now, it, uh, we'll, we'll get to a spoiler thing in a minute because even though this film is older and everything else, a lot of people may have not have seen it. So we'll when we start to get into spoiler territory, we'll we'll let you know and you, you can pause it and go watch the movie and then come back. Uh, now the turn the uh the players the turn the prestige also is encompassed in the CD as well. When they were making the CD, they all based they based it around those three key phrases. So that the this whole thing it's very structured. Yeah, this whole structure was for the film and the script and the score as well. And you know, and the themes of the the movie as well as the book falls in into those categories because you know obsession is one of the themes, and uh, you know we see that throughout the movie, uh, even watching it, you could see it. It's obvious right. that obsession is one of the main themes. Now, one of the things I notice watching the film to me, the lack of themes actually kind of kept the mood going, kept the story going to me. I don't know if you felt the same way. Uh, see, I have mixed feelings about the score. Um, I think that the movie was strong in itself. It was very strong dialogue-wise. It had strong themes. It had strong acting. It was a strong film. And I think that the score uh, was perfect for that fact. You didn't want to over you know, overwhelm the story. Because we've talked about this before, that a score could make or break a film. Right. I think in this instance, the minimalistic score that they chose for the film um, was good in the way that it did not take away from the story of the film. It did not take away uh, from the dialogue. It did not take away from the action, uh, from the the mystery, right. you know, because it's uh, based well, on magic. I, I think that... That was well placed. However, there was a few things I noticed at the beginning of the film that what I would have liked to have seen, but maybe it's because I'm just being me, because <laughs> I know you don't agree with me. And one of the scenes was at the very beginning where he had the the China man was on the stage, which he was based off of a true magician um, that was actually that could speak English, but on stage he played as a Chinese man. Um, but I noticed there was a lack of score there and I would have liked to have heard maybe, uh, an Oriental theme or something kind of Asiatic, maybe kind of, you know, well, there was a, like a little bit of music, but that was more for what was happening on the stage. It was like the music was coming from yeah. the, uh, the set, but I would have liked to have seen it married in with that, that subtle background, you know, See, I, I get what you're saying, Music. but at the same time, to me, I, I feel like that would have taken away from the style or the feel that he was, you know, already creating or that he was already establishing. I really don't feel that way. I feel like maybe you could have bolstered it just a little bit. Um, maybe. Yeah, especially if it was blended nicely. Right. You know, he could have added uh, just a key change, you know, uh, from the Oriental scale or something like that, at a key change in which it sounded Asiatic, still kept the instruments that he wanted to use because you said he used a lot of uh, the electronic sounds because it was considered modern. 
I think that he could have he could have made it work for him a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. But maybe. that's just my feeling and my opinion. As as we've always said, this is just opinion. Uh, and the second thing that I, I I noticed that I was kind of hesitant about was the scene after his wife passed away. Um, I think that uh, the score captured the fact that he was obsessed with what type of knot the his fellow musician uh magician tied um it built that suspense all right so what what happened is uh christian bell's character uh he, he was in jo- he was in charge of tying um a loose knot for jackman's uh wife for the water trick for the water trick they were going to lower her into a water tank uh christian bell p- ties the knot she slips out of the knot gets out of the tank in between while the curtain's down well, he ties the wrong knot because they say in an earlier scene that she can get out of this one certain knot. Well, she can't. Michael Kane tries to save her, you know, by busting the water tank open with an axe, but ultimately she she passes away. And there's a funeral scene in which, you know, Leslie's talking about now and the music's there and it, it captured because Hugh Jackman's character is asking Christian Bale, you know, what kind of knot did you tie? And Christian Bale's like, I keep asking myself that, and I honestly don't know. So, and this is the thing: there's two elements to that scene. It was a sorrowful scene because you had the death of his wife that he loved and he cherished, you know, because he kissed her her ankle every night before she would go on stage, and then this confusion, and this confusion on the basis of what type of knot did uh you know christian bell's character tie i think that it did really well picking up on the confusion part it built that suspense you could hear it rumbling in the undertone it was nice for that but it did not um it did not address the sorrowful part of the the funeral and i think that it could have done a little bit better they could have done a little bit better trying to do that musically and so you know that is what I noticed at the very beginning of the movie. So now, now that I I do kind of agree with you there. There should have been a more sorrowful feel because if it was there, I I did not notice it upon watching the film. Now, as far as listening to the score piece, you know, I I really don't remember hearing it in there. Uh, but yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that one because it it captured the confusion perfectly when it got to that. But the sorrowful at the beginning, it just, I didn't feel like it was It's like it totally, there. completely missed that. And that was a main, to me, a main plot point because that's what set him on that spiral obsession right. path. Now, it was it was kind of hard for me at first. Watch, every time they would talk about, you know, they would mention Christian Bell's character because his name was Alfred. And then you had, you know, who... Michael Cri- Caine. Yeah, you know, Michael <laughs> Caine, who's Alfred. And Christian Bale is Batman, and he's like, "Oh, Alfred! Oh, Alfred!" I'm like, "This is bothering me because you not you got Wolverine, Batman, Alfred, and Black Widow, and also um, Rebecca Hall played the Doctor in Iron Man three. So you got all of these different characters from Marvel and DC in here, and I'm just going, I'm like, oh, this is like a superhero, you know, the reunion. Hey, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. We're doing magic." <laughs> Abracadabra. I mean, no, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, I, I don't think, had um, 
become Black Widow at that point. Uh, now, Hugh Jackman was known for Wolverine and Christian Bale, like I said, it just done Batman Begins. And so Michael Caine, of course. And Rebecca Hall, she had not done Iron Man 3 at that point. But it was just, it was funny to see all these different actors from all these different, you know, superhero films in there. And I'm like, oh, wow, that, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Nolan's worked with them before. Yep. You know. Now, one of the things with the score, um, again, going back to this interview, David Julian says, uh, there's a lot of stuff in tracks such as Colorado Springs, where in the background there's a shepherd's tone. That's the audio equivalent of an optical illusion, so that it appears to rise constantly. So it's a very nice effect that uh, Nolan, him and Nolan settled on. So it allowed me to produce a very textural bed to lay under the orchestra. That's pretty interesting. It is interesting, and I didn't even notice it when I watched that scene. The scene he refers to is of Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla, um, which is kind of based a little bit on real-life events, because he did do experimentation um, in Colorado at one point of his career. Um, But uh, Hugh Jackman's character goes to Tesla to figure out the secrets of uh christian bale's magic trick and it took him there i did not notice it in the scene whatsoever but maybe it's because i was just i love david bowie so (laughs) now david bowie uh you you found this out david bowie turned down the role initially he turned down the role and christopher nolan personally went to bowie uh to ask him to please play you know play this role he said i i can't see anybody else in it but you and so he finally agreed i thought it was great when bowie showed up because i'm sitting there watching the film and you got hugh jackman you got christian bale and then you know michael kane and then you know andy circus is playing tesla's assistant I'm going, okay, you know, who, who, who's who's playing Tesco? Who's, and I had no idea it was David Bowie. I didn't either. And then out comes David Bowie walking through the Tesla coil, you know, electricity. And I'm going, oh, this is yeah, amazing. I had a geek moment when I first saw this movie and saw Bowie, you know, step out as Tesla. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's David Bowie. To me. It was amazing. He really looked and sounded exactly like Tesla. I mean, every t- now every time I think of Tesla, I think of David Bowie <laughs> in that role. I mean, it was it was perfect casting. It really, really was. Tesla is my favorite scientist. If you start talking about, you know, Einstein versus Tesla, you know, I love Albert Einstein, but I love the free thinking Tesla. Right. Because he was to me, he was just amazing. He he was able to work things out in his mind before he built them. It was just it's wonderful. So here, now we're getting to the part where I was talking about before, where we're going to get into the spoilers. So if you do not want to be spoiled, you might want to pause the podcast, go watch The Prestige, and then come back. So we're going to get, you know, kind of pause for a moment. And now you're back. (laughs) So (laughs) again, if you have not seen the film, uh, don't listen any further. Go pause it, go back and watch it, because seriously... Uh, I'm about to ruin everything. So the film keeps going, and the reason why it, Hugh Jackman's character is there talking to Nicholas Te- Nicholas Tesla can't even get that out. Nicola Tesla. There we go. <laughs> the reason why he's talking to David Bowie 
is because <laughs> because apparently he uh, built a machine, or he's under the pretenses that he built a machine for Christian Bell's character, allowing him to transport from one location to another. Tesla's like, yes, I did. Or no, he 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 alludes to the fact that he did. He never outright says he that built he did. the machine, but the machine didn't do what Hugh Jackman's character thought that it did. Hugh Jackman's character became so obsessed with the idea of um, the the trick that Christian Bale did. It's he, called the transported man. He could not simply acknowledge the fact that he had a double. Now the um, trick is. Uh, his character, Christian Bale's character, would go into the box. He would bounce a ball across the stage. He would go into one box, and then he would pop out another box on the other side of the stage. Now, for upon seeing Hugh Jackman's characters, he's like, "It's the same person. It's the same person." He, he's he's missing the two fingers because Hugh Jackman's character um, messed up a trick and it blew away uh, two fingers off of Christian Bale's uh, character's hand. So he's missing his um, pinky. And the finger his ring and finger. his ring finger, uh, because of the trick. So uh, Scarlett Johansson says, "Oh, it's the same character. It's the same person because I've seen where he's hiding the, the the fingers, the missing fingers." So they Michael King's character kept telling him he's using a double. He's using a double. He's using a double. Yeah, he looked at it very simplistically. He's like, "Look, the only way to do the trick is to use a double." Hugh Jackman did not want to. Uh, acknowledge that. So he goes to Tesla thinking that Tesla has done some science magic. That's how I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it science magic. Science magic. But he's done some science magic and transported him from one point to the other. So what happens is Tesla builds a machine for Hugh Jackman's character that does not transport him. It clones him. And when the clone appears, it appears on one certain area. Uh, now when this happens, you, you find out toward the end, that's when, um, Robert Angier, which is Hugh Jackman's character, has created the, the real transported man. And every night when the trick would happen, the person that goes up on the stage, the, tr the, uh, electricity would start. And then right before the big flash, uh, before the cloning process happens, uh, the person standing under the beams would fall under the stage into a water tank, and then the clone appears on the other side of the room and, you know, wows the audience and everything else. That, to me, was kind of terrifying. Think that, oh, well, he has to get up on stage and die every night, and he knows he has to do it. That is kind of, you know, hard to think about. It's hard to think about, but you know, you'd think that the score would be memorable at that moment. Yeah. And it's still, it's still, it's still in the background. It's still in the background. It's still in doing it. It's, it's not it's, memorable at all. But to me, it really um, adds the tension to what's going on. To me, it does anyway. There are scenes where it has added the tension and uh, I could note it. In my notes, but there were scenes that I felt like I would have liked to have heard it a little bit more, and I didn't. Right now, and then that's when um, Angier, when uh, Borden, Christian Bell's character, 
wants to figure out what's going on. So he, 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 you know, he, he wants to figure out how, you know, Robert Angier is uh, creating this. So what, what he does, he goes under the stage and that's when the Hugh Jackman's character drops into the water tank and, you know, Borden's actually trying to save him. So that's how the film starts off with Hugh Jackman's character dropping into a water tank and he can't get out and Christian dying. Bale's, yeah. and dying and Christian Bale's trying to save him. So Borden is um, becoming, he's going to be hanged for this crime. And then you're slowly figuring out what's happening throughout the whole story. And then that's when you figure out the big secret to Christian Bale's character and to his trick is he has a twin, which Michael Caine said it all along. He had a double. And they set this up throughout the whole movie. There's subtle little hints where they're talk they're referencing a brother or um like Scarlett Johansson's character calls him Freddie and then one of them's calling him Alfred. And you know, right then and there that you're you're establishing a duality between the characters. Yeah, it there's a trick that um Christian Bale's uh character did at the beginning or was at the beginning of the movie with his future wife. And I don't know if this was her little boy or her nephew. And so the bird... It was uh, her nephew. Was it her nephew? <laughs> the bird was in this cage. They smushed the cage down, killing the bird. But you didn't see that in the trick. You just saw the live bird. Little boy picked up on it and still started to cry and say, well, where is his brother? Right then and right there. Right there, reference to, you know, what foreshadowing to what was going on in the movie. So... Uh, the first time I watched the movie, I didn't pick up on any of that stuff until I sat down and watched it again um, for for this exercise. And then I started picking up on these subtle nuances like, oh, my goodness. Right. I didn't see this before. Or like the wife saying, well, which one is it today? Oh, you mean it today. Yeah. Uh, she would ask him, you know, um, do you love me? He goes, I love you. She goes, no, not today. I can tell it with your eyes. It's not today. It's just when the days you do tell me, you know, it means more to me. And I'm uh, first time watching it, I was going, "This chick's crazy." Yeah. <laughs> and and then when you find out that, you know, he's a twin, I was like, "Whoa, okay, makes sense." That makes sense now. But the other ironic thing is that their deaths were tied to um, their wife's deaths. Hugh Jackman's wife drowned. He drowned every night. Um, Christian Bale's wife. Hung herself eventually, and he eventually One of the hung. twins was hung, yeah. yeah. So, you know, they were tied to their wives. Um, but, you know, we go back to the score. It wasn't really memorable for any of those moments in my mind, and it wasn't memorable at the end either. It, it kept it steady, slow, moody, a minimalistic score throughout the entire thing. There, exactly. were, there were a couple moments where it got a little bigger to anticipate, you know, or not anticipate to, to build the tension, but it, it never went above that. Now, one of the interesting things was that uh, Hans Zimmer was credited as the uh, uh, one of the executive music producers. That was because David Julian, this was his first time scoring in Los Angeles. He had always been scoring in uh, London. So he went to Hans Zimmer's studio at Remote Control, and Zimmer was always kind of in the background, kind of, you know, giving him some notes, you know, here throughout. And uh, But it was really the, the, the main focus. It was mainly Nolan and David Julian 
and you know they were going back and forth on what what they wanted. So with this score, it really comes down to what the director wanted and what the what his vision was, what his vision was, and what the film needed. Yeah, or what he thought the film needed. And I thought that was I thought that was great because this is really the first time that we found out, you know, in doing this, you know, what was the what was the drive there? What was the motivation behind this? And that was pretty cool. I agree. So, as always, with every score that we do, we break it down to three different criterias. Does it work for the film? That's a hard one for me today. Um, I feel like 90% it works from the film, other than that one scene uh, that we discussed. Uh, I think that because the movie was so strong, you could have had no score in the movie, and it still would have been a good movie. Um, so I think for this exercise, I'm going to say yes, it worked. I'm going to agree with you. Uh, because like you were talking about that one scene with the, um, with the funeral, that, that kind of, you know, I don't know, some, something could have been done a little bit different for that part right there, but yeah, it, it really does. It, it, it works for the film. I, I, you know, it, it built the mood when it needed to, it built the tension when it needed to. And it never went over the top, uh, kind of hindering the story or the dialogue or the characters. So yeah, it it works for the film. Now, yeah. do you have a favorite score piece or scene from the film? Favorite scene, hmm, tough one. Hmm, my favorite scene. The score wasn't notable, <laughs> like it wasn't throughout most of the film. But my favorite scene is when. He decides to show Hugh Jackman Tesla's experiment, and you have all of these light bulbs in the snow, and they're all illuminated, and there's no wires connected to yeah, them. Yeah, no, that's that, my favorite. That scene. was pretty cool. Uh, now I do have our favorite score piece. I do not know the name of the piece. Um, it's the scene where Christian Bale's trying to get you know Hugh Jackman out of the water tank, and he's he's you know trying to, and you got that slow, steady kick drum you know, a slow, steady kick, just, you know, just steadily in there and it's driving the tension and it's going in, you know, got the swelling of the the orchestra and the ambient pads and everything else. I, I did like that piece. Uh, now, overall, it, it was a fine sounding score to me, uh, but it was, you know, again, like, like we've been saying, it was nothing really notable except for that one right there. That one to me, I, I did, you know, that one did kind of, go a little above him, you know, but not really to me. And that one kind of stood out a little bit. Now, my favorite scene is when Hugh Jackman's character is trying to figure out how the, you know, quote unquote, Chinese man is doing his trick. And he's talking about how Christian Bale automatically picked it up that, you know, that is the trick. He He's not an old Chinese man. He's, you know, he's... He's a normal person. He's that is, you know, his illusion. But the thing is, you know, Hugh Jackman's trying to figure out how he did the fishbowl trick. So he's got like this, you know, bed sheet over. Oh him. yeah, and the fishbowl. Yeah, and, and he's like, oh, he must be strong as an ox. I, I kind of liked that little scene. It, it was, it was fun. I mean, I, I love the film. Don't get me wrong. I, I love just about every moment of this movie because it, it still has a great wonderment to it. 
but that one scene kind of stood out. I was like, yeah, that's 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 pretty cool because you know he's trying to figure it out. He's he's trying to work it in his head. How did he do that? And he couldn't get it right. But even then, at the very that part of the movie, he you could tell he overcomplicated things. Yep. And typically, sometimes the simplest explanation is the solution. Uh, now, the last criteria: uh, what could have been done better? Well, we've mentioned it before. I think the score piece at the very beginning, uh, the funeral, could have been done a little bit differently. It would have kind of amped up the uh, scene a little bit. Um, He could have, I mean, he was using ambient music anyway. You can actually make that very sorrowful very easily uh, and moody if you needed to. Um, So I felt like he could have done that, you know, executed it in a way that he could have reflected both of those themes that were going on in that scene at the same time. And then the, at the very beginning, the, the Chinaman scene, yeah. I felt like he could have uh, done something just a little bit different um, to, you know, build up that uh, mood that was going on there. Right. I, I agree with you with the funeral part. I, I think, you know, something could have been done a little bit different there, but, Overall, it, it it worked for the film. I thought it was great. It was so a good score, yeah. I I, I really couldn't. I mean, because it was kind of different for us, because a lot of the scores that we've been covering is kind of big over the top, where this one is not. It's not, yeah. And so we had to kind of step back and go, well, this is going to be different. This is going to be a little bit difficult to talk about because it's it's really one of those scores that is made for the film. Well, even at the very beginning, you're listening to the score, you know that, okay, there's got to be a reason why this is subtle. And we, you know, we've watched the movie before. We kind of picked up on the fact that, okay, maybe they wanted the scene to shine more so than the music itself. Right. And, and definitely. So what could have been done different other than the funeral thing? Nothing. I mean, to me. Nothing nothing could have really been done any, any different, and I really can't picture a different type of score in here. I mean, if anything, there could have been no score from uh, the majority of the film. So, as always, uh, you know, we get to this portion of the podcast. We want to thank you so much for listening. Um, you guys have been amazing you know, leaving all the reviews and, you know, the comments and everything else. And we, we try to get to all of them when we can. Uh, but life does kind of get in the way a little bit. I want to kind of go Jeff Goldblum there. Life uh, gets in the way. Oh, you so, <laughs> such a dork. <laughs> such a big dork. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can uh, listen to us on YouTube where it's just like a static image and, you know, you hear voices and everything else. And uh, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, I even found out we're on Deezer now. I don't even know what Deezer is, but yeah, we're on it. Rhymes with geezer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we're also on uh, Podchaser, Stitcher. Like I said, anywhere you listen to podcasts, I'm pretty sure you can find us. Oh, and Pandora as well. If anybody even listens to Pandora anymore, which I don't think they do. Uh <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, if you want to, guys, uh, seriously, uh, you got a score for us. You, you got something you want us to cover. Send us a message. We're still getting score requests, guys. So uh, when we write season two up, we're going to have yep. to weave those into our, yeah, our season, plan. Season one was pretty much, you know, what we wanted to do. But um, season two, we've got some listener requests. So seriously, guys, if you have a request, 
uh, send them to us. Like I said, you can find us on any social media. Contact us on there. We'll, you know, we'll listen to you. We're not going to be mean and turn you away. We're Southern. We're not mean anyway. Exactly. (laughs) That's just not in our nature. Nope. Uh, Now, tune in for our next episode. It is actually episode 15, and it is the season finale of the first season. We're going to be talking, it's our composer showcase. We're going to be talking about Brian Tyler. Yay! Uh, Pretty much the rock and roll of film scoring. Uh, so yeah, it should be a fun episode. So like I said, it's the season finale and we also got a couple of announcements we're going to make on the season finale. So you don't want to miss that episode. So as always, thank you so much for listening to measuring the score. I'm Chris and I'm Leslie. Have a good one.